This episode contains sensitive subject matter, including violence and assault, which may be triggering for some listeners. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. Forgiveness is like an ongoing act. So we forgive 77 times, you know, seven, we just have to continue to forgive and forgive. And a lot of times if we don't have what it takes to forgive, we ask God to give us, you know, the ability to be able to do this because it's not up to us. Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Forgiveness can be a difficult concept, especially when we've been harmed in ways that have long-lasting effects in our lives. However, unforgiveness can end up doing even more damage as we allow an old wound to fester or bitterness to take root in our spirits. Studies have shown that when we can't forgive, we may experience the emotional pain of anger, hate, hurt, or resentment, which can even make us physically ill, affect our relationships, and ultimately keep us from experiencing the freedom that forgiveness allows. Our guests this week have stories of pain and harm done by people filled with hatred that was so traumatic, forgiveness seemed like an impossibility. Jean Lequin, a writer and speaker, endured the atrocities of the Rwandan genocide as part of an ethnic group who were targeted for massacre. Randy Hartley, a Tennessee businessman, traveled with his daughter to Rwanda and befriended a man whose own aunt was responsible for the death of his mother, sisters, and niece. Forgiveness didn't seem like an option in their stories, Yet through prayer and faith, it became the only choice that would bring wholeness and restoration to those involved. Let's start with Jean's story. My name is Jean Celestine Lakin, and I am an author, I am a mom of a five-year-old, and I just get to do a bunch of things in the world. So I do public speaking and work with students as well. I just feel so blessed to be in a place where I can be able to uh, have an impact in the world. I grew up in a family where, you know, my parents had their own businesses. They had financially and economically, they were secured. And as a child, I felt like I had everything a child could have dreamed of. I knew my future was set uh, in a sense that I had, uh, you know, financially, I could be, I could do whatever that I wanted to be able to do without feeling like, oh, oh, we don't have the money for this. My parents were the kind that would actually support people in our community. They went out and they fed the poor, they closed the poor, they paid tuition for uh, children from uh, families that were less fortunate than we did. My dad was someone who was known in the community as a mediator. So he was that somebody, if there was any type of like conflict, he had been elected by the people. They called him uh, a fair judge. That's somebody who would actually see both sides, who bring people, if there was any type of like uh conflicts among, you know, whether it was like home issues, uh, whether it was about land or whether it was just regular fighting among, you know, neighbors, they'll come to him before they go to court because of that fairness that he had in him. I remember right before the genocide, 1994, I went to school and I was in middle school. And then my teacher, they divided us, they segregated us by ethnicity. So the teacher said, the Tutsis on one side, the Hutus on the other side. And so there I stood in front of the class. I was among the top students and I had no idea who I was. I had no clue 
who, which ethnicity that I belong to. And again, it was because my parents believed in this human family, this uh, kingdom family that most people tend to not see nowadays. Um, so what my teacher said, well, if you do not know which group you belong to, do not come to class tomorrow or you will be expelled. And so I went home and I went and I asked my mom and I said, who am I? But I remember my mother's response, which was, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry yourself. You're a child of God. But I was like, that's not enough. <laughs> I need more. Give me more. Because I need to go back to class and explain to my teacher and see it according to my ethnicity. And so she finally, after I went back and forth and probed a little bit more, she said, you're a Tutsi. And it just felt like this, uh, it was almost like, it felt like somebody just punched me in the belly because I was like, oh no, I am among the group that is not wanted, that is not accepted. They used to call the Tutsis the aliens in the country. The, the Tutsis were referred to as snakes and cockroaches. And so I, I felt like, oh no, I just really don't, you know, it's like something like identity just that, you know, I went from being this human to being identified and classified into this place that wasn't wanted in the country. On April 7th, the genocide started. 500,000 machetes that were imported into the country, given to the Hutu ethnicity to be able to kill the Tutsis. And so when that happened on April 7th, and our neighbors with machetes and grenades and guns and clubs to kill people. The way people turn against each other so quickly, it's something that even up to this day, I still don't understand how it could be possible. So we went from being from this home, a beautiful home, uh, to into the bushes hiding for our lives and watching our neighbors, our loved ones, our families being basically killed because of how God had created us. So in three months, I was just hiding in the bushes, in the swamps, drinking rainwater, or in the bushes for, you know, just months and months. And again, I'm watching people dying left and right in front of me. This family finally took me in. And um, once they took me into the family, my uncle happens to be in that home. And he said to me that, hey, I've seen your mother's dead body. And that was the first news of somebody dying in my family. And it happened to be my mom. And so I was so devastated. I felt like my whole life just scattered right in front of me uh, to know that my precious mom is dead when a few days ago I was like I was with her and so my uncle said well if you want to save your three week old little brother he might be alive he's in your mother's he might be you know in, on her back this is where your mother is and I was thinking to myself that you know I cannot even fathom going to try to make sense of all this chaos. But I thought my parents would have had wanted me to save this little baby's life. So I said, God, carry me through this. Let me go 
and if it, it is meant for me that I save his life and whatever happens, we are all in your hands. So I marched to this place where my uncle had told me where my mom will be. I went and found out that, that not only my mom was completely dead, but they also had killed this little infant, little baby. And um, they didn't spare anybody, even a three-week-old little baby. Grandma and grandpa, who might have not even been able to walk, were killed because of the way God has created them. So it was a very dark place. It was a dark moment of my life. My parents were devoted Catholics, so they taught me the power of prayer. When I pray, I don't think God is like, you know, somewhere in another room or God is like, you know, high up there in the sky that I cannot have that access to him. I really believe one of God's name is that he's a God who sees us. He's a God who sees all the details of our lives. And he knows the, the print of our hands. He knows how many, you know, hairs are on our head. And so when I speak, when I pray, I think that God is right there next to me, listening to me, watching me through all of that. It's the same way that I saw God in the genocide. Again, everything is stripped away. My Now mom is dead, I know. And I started praying simple prayer. The simple prayer that I had was, God, blind them, blind these men and women with machetes. And children were, you know, young kids were killing people too. I said, blind these people that they might not see me. And it was in a way of saying that, I know they can see me, God, but you have a way of working miracles. Blind them that they might not see me. I went back and I counted how many times that God revealed himself to me. And when I was in the presence of these people with machetes and guns and, and grenades, you know, with machetes, with blood dripping off those tools, standing in their presence and saying, God, blind them that they might not see me over 200 times. And so I'm seeing miracles and over and over again. And I say, okay, this prayer is working. God is on my behalf. God is working in this midst of uh, this darkness. And a few times they would actually have me. They would say, well, we captured you. Go ahead and pray. We're going to give you 15 minutes to pray and we'll kill you. And prayer is all I had. And prayer is everything. I mean, everything was just taken away, but I knew I could access that peace with God through prayer. That I knew I, I had, God was seeing me through this chaos. And so I really prayed. And a few times I, I would actually sit there and pray and pray and pray. And these men will look like they're drunk or they look like they got distracted by something. And I felt like that was the prayer that God said, <laughs> the blinding. I felt like they forgot that I was actually sitting there and they just walk off. And it was God really doing, working on my behalf, God working, seeing me through all of this in the middle of the genocide. I also saw my father being killed in the genocide as well with machetes and clubs. I remember just praying and saying, God, please, please, please protect him. But he died anyways. But with this, I realized that a lot of times we might pray for something. We might not receive what we're praying for. 
God, you know, created us with a choice. So people can choose to do good. People can choose to do evil work as well. So there's no way of resenting God because he created these people who chose to do the evil work. It wasn't God with machetes and clubs killing people in Rwanda. It was the people that he had created who went away from his, out of his love and decided to hurt and harm other people. So I get to survive the genocide. Uh, after the genocide, we have this group of people who, the Hutus who had participated in the genocide, who decided that they would actually, if uh, they stayed in the country, they would actually face consequences of their participation in the genocide. So they pick up and decide to flee the country. At one point, I get into this um home when I get captured by this man and he's, he decides to flee the country. He was uh, sexually abusing me as well. So I was raped as a child. Uh, rape was one of the uh, weapon against women in the genocide. So over 500,000 women were raped in the genocide. That includes me too. So he picks up and he leaves and he leaves with me. After the genocide, as we were about to cross this uh you know, there's this river we're about to cross and go into a different country. They still identified people who looked like me, people who were identified as Tutsis. They took us, took me and a few others. They put us in line and they killed every single person in front of me. And they threw their bodies in the river. And again, I'm praying and asking God to protect me once more. And I say, God, you did not bring me here to die here. You did not save me through all this chaos of the genocide to bring me across this other side so that I die here. I say, I've seen your miracles. I've seen you work, God. I want you to protect me once again. And as I was saying this prayer, I hear this woman. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people in this refugee camp. I hear this woman and again, people are loud and they're chanting and saying, go ahead and kill her, kill her, kill her, get rid of her. They threw me on the ground. And this woman is just screaming and she say, stop, stop. That's my child. She's my daughter. And I'm thinking to myself that this woman maybe lost her daughter. And maybe I kind of look like her from distance. She's going to get close by and she's going to look at me and realize, no, I am not her child. And so... I let it play. She weaves herself through this crowd of people, this man with their machetes still hanging up in the air to butcher me, just like everybody else, men, women, and babies. And she looks at me and I look at her and she said, this is my child. I am shocked, but I'm not saying anything. And that brings tears in my eyes because she, she's claiming me to be her daughter. And I know at this point, I know my mom is dead. And these men are confused. Still with the machetes hanging up in the air about to kill me. And she said, yeah, this is my child. So the men, they took us apart, took her on one side. They take me on the other side to investigate, to see if this is true. And everything that I told the, this uh, group that was investigating was exactly what was written in her racial identification card. 
And this man, they picked me up and they just like threw me right in her arms and say, yeah, go ahead and go with her. So as I'm walking away with this woman who was just flawless, beautiful, I was dying to ask her questions of who she was. And I, I feel like this presence of peace in her arms. And as she held my hand, she said, my child, go with these people. I will be with you. Go back with the same people that was about to kill you. I will be with you. And Amy, she released, released her hands and mine. And in that moment, she disappeared. And I felt like God once again, that over 200 some times that God saved me, God showed up one more time. God has a way of, even when we don't feel like he's working miracles in our lives, even when we don't see it through, God is working because again, he's a God who sees. He's a God who sees details that we might not see. I remember just, you know, wandering in the streets, feeling so lonely, feeling so sad, so depressed because of all the things that I had just witnessed in that six months after the genocide. And thinking back to how well I had it to now not having even the basic needs, the, the basic necessities. And I remember having a conversation with God. I was like, I want to be able to forgive these people. I really want to be able to let go of what happened to me and be normal. But I couldn't get myself to forgive what had happened in the genocide. And again, I said, God, I need your help. I need you. I cannot do this by myself. Give me the strength to do this. When I was able to forgive, when I was able to say, I forgive you for the rape, for raping me. I forgive you for killing my family. I forgive you for all the pains, all the nights I spent thinking about all the pain you caused in my life. That was God's gift. I felt so much joy. I felt so much peace in my heart. I felt like there was this possibility that just opened for me, these potentials that I felt like I could never reach, that somehow I was able to reach. And again, it's because of that love of God that we can fully, fully experience uh, joy. We can free our mind if we are able to forgive. as a U.S. citizen now, it has given me a place to heal, a place to, to be able to reconnect with people, now to being able to have access to so much more, to see my dreams and goals just, you know, flourishing. It's just, it's magical. It's beautiful. I met my husband, Paul. Uh, we actually went to college, uh, the same university. We graduated at the same time and we had our son, Samuel, who is also a miracle baby. God takes these pieces that are just so broken that we as humans, that we cannot put together. But God just creates beauty out of ashes. God puts back these pieces into this beautiful mosaic piece that we get to admire at the end of it. And so for me to go from um, the genocide itself 
1994, where they killed over 1 million people in 100 days. And for me to experience all of that, I felt like God was right there in midst all of it, because I really felt like when I was, you know, listening or watching people being killed all around me, I went back into this place of prayer and I asked God to give me the strength, the courage to do whatever that it took for me to survive. And as a nine-year-old, there's really nothing I could have done except to rely on God. Uh, so the power of prayer really was something that once everything was like stripped away and I was hiding in the bushes, in the swamps, drinking rainwater, pond water, eating grass and plants, I really saw God even deeper than I have ever experienced God. Even though that I grew up in a Christian family, my relationship with God deepened. And it was that, you know, once everything is taken away from you and all you have is God and prayer, it really puts you in a humbling place that nothing else matters. It's like this, it's you and God, no matter what happens at the end of the day. What is the best way to really begin a day than beginning your day with God? So Jesus Calling has been that book for me that I begin my day with God. And a lot of people have asked me, you're always smiling, you're always happy, you're always content, what, what's going on? That's the Jesus that I get to meet with. My cup of coffee, my Jesus first in the morning. This is a passage from March 16th entry of Jesus Calling. It is good that you recognize your weakness. That keeps you looking to me, your strengths. Abundant life is not necessarily healthy and wealth. It is living in continual dependence on me. Instead of trying to fit this day into your preconceived mold, relax and be looking out for what I am doing. This mindset will free you to enjoy me to find what I have planned for you to do. This is far better than trying to make things go according to your own plan. God has a way of just touching our hearts and our minds in a right time. That has been so wonderful to me. God has just been blessing me to be able to do the work that I do. It's just, it's been incredible. When you have such hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment in your heart. There's no way to enjoy the simplest thing that God has created for us when we're holding on to that kind of pain. So I said, you know what, God, I realized I can't do it myself. I need you to work miracles like you've always worked miracles in my life. I want you to be able to work on this broken heart. And so my prayer is that People who hear about forgiveness will be able to free their mind because I feel like God has so much more for us as people than when we have this hatred or this uh, holding on to this pain. The reason I share my story is so that people can really understand. I think the main reason, that there are multiple reasons, but I think the one for really kind of bringing people to Christianity or to understand the goodness of God is the main reason for me to really share the miracles God has done in my life, to really hope that that they too can see the work of God through my story. I believe that 
you know, you hear the stories that God brings beauty out of ashes. And I really believe that, you know, he took this darkness that I experienced to something that, the, to give me the, the joy that I have today. To learn more about Jean and how she is sharing her story to help others, please visit avoiceinthedarkness.org. Stay tuned to Randy Hartley's story after a brief message. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Our next guest is Randy Hartley, a businessman from Nashville, Tennessee, whose picture-perfect life took an unexpected turn after learning heartbreaking news from his 16-year-old daughter. In a series of painful ups and downs that followed for Randy and his family, he wondered if things would ever be normal again, when one day a letter arrived in his mailbox that would start a journey of healing for them all. Randy eventually wrote about the experience in a book, which also became a movie, called Beautifully Broken, a story which encompasses restoration, renewal, and a trip to Rwanda where their lives would be intertwined with a family who had survived the Rwandan genocide and would also show them the true meaning of forgiveness. Well, my name is Randy Hartley. I'm a financial planner in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I've been married to my wife uh, this summer. will be 36 years. So it's the same job. I'm in the same job now that I started when I moved here 39 years ago in financial planning. And I uh, really felt like I was living the American dream with three kids and the dogs living in the suburb and life was rocking along. And then all of a sudden, uh, some events happened and kind of turned our family into turmoil. And all of a sudden, our middle daughter during her teen years really started taking a left-hand turn. And it, it's what no parent really wants. It's the drugs, the alcohol, and rebellion. And w we were desperate trying to figure out what was going on. And what had started as a slow turn into darkness just became... Uh, Boy, it became a, a runaway train. And, and so finally one weekend, my daughter Andrea didn't come home on Friday. And for two days, we didn't know where she was. And, and I was a dad driving around at night looking for a 16-year-old. And I'll tell you, if you've ever been a dad driving at 3 in the morning trying to find out where your daughter is, it just doesn't get any darker than that. But thankfully on Sunday, finally, for one last time, I texted her and I said, Dear honey, I know you need help let mom and I help you please come home and why I don't know but thank God uh, Andrea had turned her phone back on and replied within 30 seconds and said you're right I need help I'm coming home and that in itself was was a blessing so when she came home we took her to a 30-day um, program just to help with with drinking and addiction and helping us trying to get a handle on what was happening the third week she was there we went out there and uh, met with her at the counselor's office and we were handed a letter and the letter was 
it's a letter no dad ever wants to read it, it basically said um dear mom and dad uh when i was 12 years old i was molested at a public park in brentwood and um the, the rest of that day became a blur to me but as bad as that news was it at least gave us a starting point to know what was happening and how to address it so um and, and, and so that, that became kind of our, our point of, all right, we, we know what the issues are. How do we go about addressing these issues? We immediately went into some intense um, family counseling and furthered her counseling. And, and one thing I tell people all the time is when you have somebody who's gone through trauma like that, and our family had gone through four years of trauma, uh, the counseling is not just for the person who went through the trauma. It's for the whole family because the whole family dynamic has been damaged more than you might imagine. So it really is a family dynamic that needs to be worked on with, with that counseling. And we were very fortunate to have some great counselors. And Andrew is making progress, but the other thing I tell people all the time is that progress is never linear. It's two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. One day I came home from work and I was just in this exasperated state of coming home to another house in turmoil again. And in the midst of that, I looked at my mail and we had a letter from Compassion International from Omahosa. And Omahosa had been the girl that Andrea had been corresponding with for 10 years. When Andrea was six years old, we went to an Amy Grant concert and Amy invited us to look under our chairs and to find a brochure to sign up for Compassion International. And that Christmas is when my wife and I came home and we had each of our kids sign up to sponsor a child. And my middle daughter, Andrea, said she wanted to sponsor a child from Africa. And we were sent a Mahosa. And for 10 years, we sponsored that child. And I would like to think that God knew and started laying that path way before we ever knew it was possible that this is our way out. This is our way of getting past the trauma and the pain that our family had gone through. And when I got home and I saw that letter, for some reason, I picked up that letter and I said, that's it. I'm taking my daughter to Rwanda. And I tell people all the time, God knows why I thought that was an answer. But thankfully, God knew why that was the answer. Once I decided I was going to take her to Rwanda, the next question is, how do we get there and what do we do? But thankfully, God had put into my life a great friend who'd become my neighbor, William and Abrali Muzerwa. The Muzerwas were refugees from the Rwandan genocide. And uh, their youngest son and my son were the same age, and I'd gotten to know William. I didn't know much about him other than he had started a ministry serving refugees. So I called William and said, William, I need to take my daughter to Rwanda. Can you help me? And one of the many minor miracles that happened throughout our story, thankfully his wife was leading a mission group back to Rwanda that summer for their first trip ever back to Rwanda since the genocide. So I offered to pay her way if she would go early with Andrea and I, and thankfully she did. And I didn't realize at the time what an absolute godsend that was to have her as our guide through our trip through Rwanda. And we ended up going back to Rwanda. We learned so much more about the Mazeros' lives that frankly, if I'd known in advance, I'd have never had the guts or the, the gumption to ask them to be our guides. But at the end of that trip, we made it out to Murumbi, Rwanda, out in the rural Rwanda, to meet the little girl that we'd been sponsoring all those years. And when we got to our house, the family came pouring out of the house, including the father. And the reason that I was surprised by that is in the 10 years we had supported Amahosa, we'd always been told that her father was in jail. 
But as we sat down and we started uh, our initial introductions, her father started talking and he told us that he had gone to jail in 1994 when Amahosa was two years old. That would have been the year of the genocide. And when he went to jail, he didn't know how his family would survive. So he told us, he said, I prayed to God, God, how is my family going to survive? How are they going to make it through this? And he looked right at me and he said, God sent me you. He said, I got to thank you for being a faithful father to my family all these years that I couldn't be here. And I, I was shocked by that because I felt like anything but a faithful father. In fact, I felt like I had really messed up because it was my job to provide for and protect my family. And, and obviously I wasn't able to do that. But he had just gotten out of jail a month before we arrived there. And, and here he was thanking me for holding his family together. I mean, it's crazy to think that we had a, a family who had escaped the genocide and had to leave Rwanda to save their lives. We're leading me and my daughter back to a girl whose father had been jailed because of the genocide. And our family had saved his family's life. In many ways, Omahosa had been a rescuing force for our family. Well, the way that our God could take a Rwandan refugee and a Nashville financial planner and a Rwandan genocide perpetrator and weave their lives together through this divine tapestry in a way that they were all saved. Well, needless to say, for me and for Andrea, being on that trip and, and hearing these things and seeing these things, we, we, that's what made it so transformational. And I thought, how am I ever going to explain this to my family? How will they ever understand? But thankfully, two years later, we went back to Rwanda on a mission trip led by Legacy Mission Village. And this time, the beauty of it was the whole Mazzara family went and our entire family went. And with William, we went out to the little countryside village where he's from, Romero, and we met with a cousin. That's about the only living relative he still had left. And he was told that his mother and his a couple of sisters and nieces and nephews had all been killed in the genocide. And so we were with them when we went along the roadside, the cars parked, and the Mazzara family walked down to where their grave sites were the first time in 17 years now since the genocide that William visited the grave. My family ended up in the vehicle being driven by William, and we were the last to leave this little roadside. And before we went about a quarter of a mile, an older lady came walking out of a little typical Rwandan mud hut, and William stopped and said, that's my mom's best friend. He hadn't been there in 17 years, and yet, right as he passes her hut, she came walking out. So he parked the car and he went to talk to her. And you could see this animated conversation with hugs. And all of a sudden, I could just tell the conversation become more serious. So William got back in the car and his mind was a million miles away as we drove back to our compound that night. And so that night during Bible study, William at the very end spoke up and said, Today, leaving the gravesite, I met my mom's best friend. And she told me that my aunt was involved in my mother's death. So he told us that Bible said that night he wanted to go back and see his aunt the next day because he said, he, I felt like I needed to forgive her and I need to find out what happened. So please pray for me. And that night again at Bible studies, we're all talking at the very end, William began to speak and he said, I went to visit my aunt today and we brought her a gift. And I tried to show her that I came with no malintent. But after speaking a while, I finally asked her what happened to my mom and she told me. She said, my mom and my sisters and my nieces and nephews had been holed up in a house trying to wait out the, the, the genocide. But after about a week, the aunt came and knocked on the door. And she said, I know you're out of food and water. You need to come with me. You can stay in my hut. I'm Hutu. They won't come looking for you there. 
and she led them back to her hut, but it was a setup. Her sons were there and they hacked the family to death with machetes and killed them. But upon hearing it, William looked over and saw that she had a washstand like everyone does there. There's no flowing water in the huts. And he picked up the washstand and he filled it with water. He told her he wanted to wash her feet to show that he forgave. And after hearing that story, he washed his aunt's feet and said that she was forgiven. But William says, I knew for my aunt to move forward and for my country to move forward and for me to move forward, we couldn't hold on to the hate. We needed to forgive and move forward. And so two years later, we went on another mission trip and he went back to visit his aunt because he indeed had forgiven her and established a relationship. As he said, she was the only person alive that knew him when he was a little boy. And when he went to visit, this time at the Bible study, he comes back and said, I visited my aunt. And the first thing she asked is, do you remember what I promised last time you were here? And he said, no, I don't remember. She said, I promised you I'd start going to church again because since 1994, I'd felt unworthy. But after you washed my feet, I knew I was worthy. And she started going to church again. And so fortunately, my family was part of all those trips. And it, it's part of the story that's just gone on and on. And, and, and one of the reasons why I think our family was able to move forward because seeing the grace and their forgiveness and how his family had gotten past something so horrific as the genocide was really a behavior that we could mirror as our own family to get past our own trauma and to learn to move forward again. You know, when you're broken and then you're in the dark place, sometimes it feels like you can't ever move forward. But, but I'm here to tell you, that's just a chapter in your life. That's not the end of your story. That's just a chapter. And my book, Beautifully Broken, if it was just broken, I wouldn't want to tell the story. But we have a Lord and Savior who can take any amount of brokenness, and he can put those pieces back together again and make it beautiful. And when my daughter went through her trauma, and I was a dad driving around at three in the morning looking for a lost soul, um, that was rock bottom for me. But Lord, I have never prayed like I prayed in those moments. And it reminds us that we don't have to wait for those moments to lean into prayer, that God's there for us at all times. Every tear, every doubt, every time you're down and out, when you're hurt, feeling shame, oh, you're numb and all your pain. When you think you've lost your way, oh, you're too far gone to pray. He's still waiting there to say, you're beautiful. This is a reading from Jesus Listens, October 23rd. Gracious Jesus, from your fullness I have received grace upon grace. I worship you as I ponder your astonishing gift of salvation. By grace through faith in you, 
Because it's entirely a gift, not a result of works, my salvation is absolutely secure. My part was just to receive this precious gift, believing with faith that you provided. I rejoice in the infinite, costly treasure bought with the price of your blood. I found that multiple blessings flow out of your wondrous grace. My guilt feelings melt away in the warm light of your forgiveness. My identity as a child of God gives my life meaning and purpose. My relationship with other people improves as I relate to them with the love and forgiveness that you've given me. The Lord, fill my heart with overflowing gratitude as I ponder your glorious grace. Please remind me to spend time thinking about and thanking you for the bountiful blessings in my life. This protects my heart from the weeds of ingratitude that spring up so easily. Teach me to be thankful. In your merciful name, amen. You can find The Beautifully Broken Movie or Book wherever you get your entertainment media. If you'd like to hear more stories about the power of forgiveness, check out our interview with Casey, CJ, and Tucker Beathard. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we hear from Sonia Curry, a passionate educator and mother of three wonderfully successful children, including basketball superstar Steph Curry. Sonia shares how, when she began to pursue a real relationship with God, it impacted her life and the life of her family. When I went from just being religious and going to church to really having a personal relationship with God, and it just saved, it saved my family, it saved me, and uh, got me more focused on living out the potential that God had placed in me to get to the purpose that He had for my life. Want to hear more inspirational stories of people who have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then subscribe today to the Jesus Calling Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please be sure to leave a review, which helps us reach and inspire others with these stories. Plus, if you like seeing our guests as well as hearing them, you can find video interviews available on our YouTube channel at youtube.com Jesus Calling Book on Facebook and on the Jesus Calling Instagram page.